0: Welcome to Live the Light of Yoga, a podcast where we explore yogic principles as they apply to our personal lives and our daily unfolding. I'm your host, Christina Sell. Hey,
1: Christina, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you, Britt? I'm good. I am delighted to be back here with you after, yet again, another little life pause for us. It's
0: always a always a treat to be here. I feel like I have been so busy that when I signed in to make our appointment for the um, podcast on our program that we use, I was shocked that it was August, the last time that we were talking, because it seems like two weeks ago. Yeah. Right. I thought to myself, holy cow, (laughs) August, if you're still listening, you already know by now, we haven't been regular. (laughs) Thank you for bearing with us and whatever patience you can muster with our circuitous process. I appreciate it a lot. And we now have a couple dates on the books with some regularity. So pray for us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Somehow here we are, um, back in the conversation, looking at your book that you published about 20 years ago, Yoga from the Inside Out, and, um, I reread chapter two, and so I've got a couple, uh, points or questions or inquiries from that chapter that I'd love to just jump into with you, Christina. Let's do it. Um, so this is, if you are following along in the book, chapter two starts on page 18, um, just to give context to kind of the, the base idea of this chapter, I'm going I'm to read a bit and then I have a question for you. So you begin by saying, being on a spiritual path or living according to one's faith means that a person aligns themselves to a set of principles and values different than the everyday waking consciousness of our modern culture. I assert that all the variations of consumerism, violence, environmental degradation, human exploitation, broken relationships, psychological dysfunction, betrayal and corruption we witness as commonplace today are all malfunctions of a fundamental belief that we are separate from God and therefore separate from each other. Yoga philosophy tells us the truth that we are not separate, that we are part of the one, that our essential nature is divine, pristine and immortal. Yoga philosophy asserts that we are also unaware of that essential truth. Dreaming, instead, a self-centered fantasy that we think is real. Although we walk around and animate a life that seems real, in which we look and act awake, in terms of conscious potential, we are asleep and dreaming. We inhabit the sleeping world. On the next page, you go on to say that the work involves enlarging our focus beyond our ego's limited viewpoint into the larger context of spiritual life. Tantric work is actually about engaging aspects of the dream consciously with proper guidance in order to be awakened from the stupor of sleep. So that's a big statement. But I loved rereading this. Um, you and I have been talking, Christina, about this year I found my love for Ram Das and have been listening to a lot of his talks and his philosophy. And something he says time and time again in the decades of talks I've been listening to from him is this idea that, um, you know, in his belief with reincarnation, like when we die, the, the experience is something like waking up like, whoa, I swear that that was real life. And that he refers to like this experience of embodiment as a dream. And so I've been really enjoying this idea. And in particular, towards the end of that quote, I just read this idea that um, tantric yoga, which is not the yoga of, you know, leaving society and only doing your practice, but where our yoga weaves into our lives and our life weaves into our yoga, um, that this is a tool for being conscious with the dream, that this this aspect of the illusionary life is um, something we can harness to point back to the consciousness of waking up from, um, you know, the unconscious world that you describe. And so I'm just curious, you know, 20 years ago you wrote this and you've been walking your walk and living your spiritual life and your human life. And um, I just wonder how it how it feels to hear that read back and what feels resonant and true, what feels grandiose and different perhaps in these days.
0: I'm struck in listening to it um, about the way that it's very binary, Mm. the way that I wrote it. And (laughs) I think to me today, I wouldn't retract it. And um, that was a lot inspired and influenced by, I think the work of Fourth Way School with Gurdjieff, and a lot of how my spiritual teacher Lee would talk about things about the sleeping world versus, you know, what it was to be in on a path of awakening and in community and consciously participating in a process of waking up. And this is all, of course, metaphoric language. <laughs> I was re- actually teaching about overviews in tantric philosophy this weekend in our 300-hour teacher development program. Mm. And we're enrolling a new course and a new cohort will begin in January. So if you want to find out more about that, go to my website. Okay, pause the story. <laughs> we were talking about really the difference of schools of yogic thought and how they saw our fundamental problem you know, the human dilemma, so to speak. What was, what was the issue that has us on the path in the first place? What's the source of our suffering? Because depending on how we see the source of our suffering, then it's going to give rise to different practices and, um, and different means and different methods. And so this uh, dream of a sleeping world and so much of it being illusory, I think that there's a layer of truth one of the things i talked about a lot this weekend is that to me these days it feels more about and my understanding of that tantra has more to do with being clear about which domain mm-hmm.
1: you
0: know so for instance though we've talked about this i think in previous podcasts the quantum physicists you know as they're studying the subatomic level of reality can see that the wall right out in front of me is not actually truly solid. <laughs> it is particles and waves. And this is now verifiable through science that what we look at is not exactly what it appears to be, in the way it appears to be that. <laughs> That being said, if I were to go walk into that wall at the level of my consciousness as it is today, I would probably hurt myself and fuck up my wall. <laughs> Depending on velocity. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on the velocity. <laughs> I would definitely hurt myself. <laughs> I mean, the wall might remain unscathed, but its solid nature is also real. hmm It's just not real at the subatomic particle level. Mm -hmm. It's real at the level of this waking consciousness that I'm in and the sort of consensual reality of that. That's kind of big picture. You know, other examples I use a lot are things that my dog Lockett, beloved dog Lockett, she can hear things that I can't hear. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I'm asleep to that. It's not an illusion that it's just a limited word. So I guess I'm having a little bit of a um, reaction to my own writing around so much emphasis on the illusory quality of it. Mm-hmm. Because in that same fashion, I would hate that someone, we all know this if we've suffered from any kind of anxiety. You know, I am sometimes anxious over an imagined future scenario. <laughs> But it's very real that I can't sleep over it. Mm-hmm. And it's very real that my heart is pounding. and it's very real that my you know blood pressure is elevated. Mm-hmm. And I've even made decisions based on my projection of an illusory future <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, projected outcome. And so there is a way that that, even though it's not real in terms of manifestation, it's actually real inside my mind and my imagination, and then manifesting in symptoms within my body, so to me, this section is talking about an um is way too binary and too limited if we're not being careful or acknowledging that there's limits and that there's levels mm-hmm. and that at what level is it real? You know we were in a training together um in one of our recent visits together where that I was leading. And one of the people in the room suggested that all of our ideas were just concepts and therefore they didn't really matter. And I didn't want to, you know, get in a fight (laughs) in the front of the room and he's not wrong from a certain perspective. And I had, I had Israel on my mind Mm -hmm. and What's going on there isn't conceptual, and it's not illusory mm-hmm. at the level that is deeply upsetting and, and is a call to action in some way for all of us. And whether that's an interior action to eradicate violence in our own hearts through our inner work, it's a call to action through donating, it's a call to action through protesting. I mean, there are different ways that any one of us might be called to action Uh, Maybe it's through uh, action to educate ourselves more so we can speak more intelligently a little bit over time or find ways to be supportive. And anyway, um, it's not illusory either. It's real. It's just not all real at the same level. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so that was an image and a kind of metaphor to talk about not a binary reality, but a Continuum of reality, and at each level, recognizing um, certain levels are going to respond to different means and mechanisms. So, if I, and I used the example in that training, I had hurt my meniscus in the beginning of the year, and I it was not conceptual, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. at a practical level and maybe maybe there's some highfalutin fancy yogi out there who could through some magical transmutation of consciousness create some kind of healing effect to the meniscus of my knee mm-hmm. or to their knee and rise above all of that I mean, maybe that's just not the path I'm on that was not how it worked for me it took a certain kind of abstinence from certain activities while creating healing inputs through a whole bunch of physical therapy and isometric loading so that the tissues could re- get into a situation where they could repair. So I couldn't respond to a meniscus tear in meditation only mm-hmm. and because that is a different input that might not go into the <laughs> of my knee anyway silly examples but um and I worry as um with so much going on in the world that these kinds of philosophies um you know that uh, someone would hear that something like that from me and think that I was on the side of life is an illusion and therefore we rise above it beyond it and. All is good because I'm waking up to the deeper truth of my expanded consciousness, and therefore I have no obligation to the world of binary reality that's full of suffering and full of these symptoms and expressions of this deep misunderstanding of separation. Is that a lot of words?
1: (laughs) There's a lot of words. I wonder, I mean, this is something I think about all the time that you said years ago, Christina, it's real to the degree it's real. Right. And I'm sure we've said it on the podcast and you're explaining it beautifully again. And I'm thinking about, you know, the wall is real. The tear in your knee is real. The um, suffering in Israel, the complexity of that situation is real. And particularly Um, to kind of zoom in through the lens of our own consciousness and our own perception of reality. I think that's where I really love this idea of um, waking up that there is this, um, you know, our mind is just going all the time. Like your, your heart is beating, your blood is flowing, your brain's just shitting out thoughts all day long (laughs) and to the the degree that we can um, focus that. And that's what I was really getting in that first um, paragraph as I was rereading it that was really resonating. You know, you make this big, long list. I assert that all the variations of consumerism and on and on, I won't read them all again, but um, are all manifestations of a fundamental belief that we are separate from God and therefore separate from each other. And yoga philosophy tells us the truth that we are not separate. And so I wonder, because I agree with you totally, like so many great examples of the reality of separation, the particles in the wall, the distinct experience you and I are having compared to someone in Israel, in Africa, in space, like separation is real Um, And yet I find still so much comfort in my practice and philosophy of this understanding that um, yoga points us back to that connectedness and that there's an edge, especially in our um, conscious perception of seeing ourselves as separate that does automatically lead to suffering. That is the root of so much the devastation that we see and that we live through individually and globally.
0: Yeah, I feel that we could glimpse it, though, you know, um, I was thinking about speaking of levels, because you're really talking about those levels of separation. And I'm thinking from a psychological standpoint, standpoint, how healthy it is to know where I end and you begin. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Like boundaries. Yeah. Consent's super cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's really great. You're like, oh, wow, that's them. And this is me. Mm -hmm. And so that's an important layer, of course, to tease out in our personal maturation process and growing ourselves up through whatever means we do. For me, therapy helped a lot. And all kinds of group experiences of practicing the art of listening to someone's experience Mm. as it is and Mm. understanding their experience um, and in its uniqueness separate from my own. And then there's that other layer of that, right? When someone's sharing about, Loss, even if we haven't lost the same thing and we haven't lost in the same way loss feels like loss mm. and there's a sameness mm. even the circumstantial differences so i think that we're glimpsing some of these mm, duh, tensions maybe or realities of difference of we're different we're the same We're the same and we're different, that they coexist, Mm -hmm. that they can be found in the same period of thinking about being in groups where we listen to one another. We make a circle of some kind and we listen. And the way someone in the heart of their sharing, when they're at their deep level of truth, other people will cry too. Because it's touching something so universal. It's touching that point of connection. And yet, I'll never forget this one woman sharing so deeply in one of our retreats at Mount Princeton about the loss of her beloved horse, you know, and she was weeping about this. We were weeping. I've never had a horse, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I knew something about we were sharing. We were in a field that was unified. And so I feel like these are big, Sometimes lofty ideals that can get big quickly and sort of almost in that feel mm, easy to become detached, and then oh, but oh my gosh, it does really happen where two or more gathered where we get together to explore ourselves in and through practice and shared intention, and we get into something that is a movement towards what's real at that level of emotions and connection. We're already in that, in that teaching. We're already waking up beyond the myth of separation. So I think it has to do a lot about these different layers. The other mm-hmm. thing I think, too, in some of this is, you know, these are meditative experiences, I think, when we're learning about them from yoga philosophy. And so those are kind of vague assertions in terms of they're big and they're bold, but it doesn't say in this scripture, you know, they're not really cited with a good solid scriptural source to say (laughs) yoga philosophy like which one you know wouldn't pass muster academically you know (laughs) like so um but but we hear that and and there's different streams of yoga philosophy to be pulling from and and i think for me this was also a way to writing the book to contextualize you know, the misery of being dragged through the mud with the societal expectations of beauty. And not just that the image of beauty was so narrowly defined within our society and the cultural paradigms that inform those standards, but that the elevation of beauty as something that, as a woman in particular, although I know that, men, and it's not just gendered, be so prioritized. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Whereas 20 years ago, I think I was writing and I read in some of this, that I wanted to expand my own idea and others about what could count as beautiful. And now I feel more that the emphasis on beauty is problematic. Yeah. Not just the narrow definition of it. Like yeah. Why is that such a priority? Yeah. We're smart, we're funny, we are caring, we're generous, we serve, we make mistakes, we gain weight, lose weight, get zits, wrinkles, our hair falls out, sometimes it comes back in, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, all of it is happening at that level that is um that, that being a priority that sweeps so many of us up requires so much energetic, financial, relational resource. That to me seems like a dream worthy of waking up from. Mm. And so, um, and I think what was happening at the time, as I remember it too, was coming into the community around Lee, where he really was, had a lot of disdain for modern society.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. not for the embodied life but for modern society's definitions of pretty much everything Mm -hmm. from success to beauty to you know what was valuable Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and so that was really his language that he would talk about the sleeping world and in retrospect it also does set up a binary that's not always useful because you could see what's about waiting to happen with that sleeping world versus the waking world is some people are asleep. Some people are awake. And now you have another binary that we're not connected.
1: Mm-hmm. There's the We've
0: separation. got <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> It just opens the door to here we are different language, much more spiritual sounding. And all of a sudden I'm better than you because I'm waking up instead of, I'm in solidarity with you because we're all suffering. Mm -hmm. And that language for me is been evolving into my considerations over the last few years, more, much more so than it was at the time of writing this book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that struck me as I read the chapter and, um, you know, there's several, several pages in which you're talking about, um, beauty standards and, and, um perception of body and as I was reading it it really just felt to me like a singular metaphor for like a, such a wider conversation and to just think about um you know like in, in chapter two 20 years ago as you were writing about it you were pointing to the um the waking up to our own uh like value and belonging and beauty that is not an externally validated thing um But I'm thinking about the sleeping world and how much we've woken up to in even the last four years as a society and as a culture and feeling really like, um, you know, where we're at in this point in time, politically and socially. And as I work with children from as young as two to like yoga students up in their 60s to see, um how much people are confronting, you know, racial inequity violence within very deeply interpersonal relationships, right? Like down to like how many people I know in therapy or in therapy with their family members and then violence on a grand scale, like what we're seeing play out in Israel. And um, yeah, I just, it, it really struck me as I was reading it, like this idea of the sleeping world it felt to me like my sense is like I feel like people are less asleep. I don't know. Twenty years ago, I was ten, <laughs> so I was asleep to a lot. But um, yeah, I wonder how that that hits for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, and then you can see the you can see what and they talk about in the Gurdjieff work the denying force. So as some of that waking up is happening around the reckoning with yeah, okay, so there was an equal rights movement. Yeah, but look what's happening. And then we've, you know, have had all of the, like you're saying, the reckoning with racial matters, with the Me Too movement. We're seeing all of that corruption that's happening in the government and our political structure rise to the surface. So there's this way that, to me, I'm very aware of Okay, there's a waking up process. There's also this backlash. There's this denial force that's coming up and mm-hmm. saying, Well, let all the people not standing up to say the election <laughs> results mm-hmm. or a lie. They're just continuing to say, No, let's stay asleep. Mm-hmm. Or it is a very sobering time to be alive. There's mm-hmm. to me still so much beauty and so much joy and so many deep moments that make life worthy of living and give me hope and reasons for continuing on with an open heart. And all of that is happening every day. It seems kind of to me some fresh new hell. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? There's more. And uh we've been talking about that through the start of this podcast, which we started during, you know, right before the pandemic, I think. And and it just seems like it's getting more.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Another piece of the chapter that really resonated for me, um, you're discussing um, pain. And there's a share from a friend. And you say, my friend and student Deborah shared with me that you have to go to hell to heal yourself. And in many ways, my research reflected that sentiment. In 12-step recovery language, this translates to hitting bottom. Hitting bottom is what makes us willing to do something different, to try something new. And there's a lot more beautifully written there and said, but I was I was thinking before we started this conversation, you know, um, of asking how how many times do we have to hit bottom, right? Like from your perspective, 20 years down the road, was there like a hit bottom and then you woke up and it hasn't been as bad, but as we're talking in this moment, I'm just thinking about um, the, the velocity of hitting bottom in so many different directions culturally um, and how that's kind of pushing the extremes from other side, from either side, right? Like there's this massive waking up and taking action and um, calling for change, reaching for change. And then on the other side, there's this massive denial and like a deeper dive into individualism than maybe ever.
0: Yeah. I'm with you on that. I do know from a personal growth perspective and from other people who have shared with me you know in the 12 step communities that where that expression really comes from. They have this thing about addictions that they say which is really an addiction unarrested ends up in one of three ways: jails, institution or death. Like that's its end game. Like that's where it goes. One of those three things. Mm-hmm. And that being said plenty of people can turn their lives around without um you know bouncing around in the pit of hell for year after year after year you know so so i don't think that it has to be like what rock bottom is can sound sort of dramatic and it can give the wrong impression so and i do know for me as i've continued to grow that um, and you've probably experienced this, and I know many of our listeners has that sometimes it's not like some massive bottom, it's a prick of conscience. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't want that for myself. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's enough. And other times it's just not. So I think it depends on which what the thing is, how deeply embedded the pattern structure is within myself, you know, and where the timing is within my own life journey. Before we go too far onward, though, I do want to just circle back to this thing that um, around this idea of the sleeping world, because I think the other reference point that I'm not sure that I was clear about 20 years ago, that I see more clearly in reading that is it's this idea that if you were to heal the knot of separation, like you were to realize you weren't separate, truly realize it, a lot of those other things go away. So it's kind of looking at, you can pick apart healing social justice issues pick apart all of these different things not pick them apart i mean but they're not they're symptoms rather than root causes and so the spiritual path was this idea of getting to the root cause and all of these things would follow and the sort of mythological promise of 20 years ago that I had bought into relative to my eating disorder was that with enough spiritual growth, food choices would handle themselves. (laughs) And I had an unconscious fantasy that if I were just going to be able to get spiritual enough, I wouldn't be plagued by these things anymore. I would undo that fundamental knot and all of these other things would handle themselves at the level that they're problematic. There's some truth, I think, to that at at a Mm -hmm. deep level of a principle. And I'd have to do a little searching, but I could find some source material for that in the yoga tradition. When we look at the stories of the the scheme of the, which I think we've mentioned in here, this idea that the great one steps down through the vibratory field into each one of us. In that process of stepping down, the psychological knots occur. And they talk about the mullahs, that idea that stain or the psychological crimping of consciousness, such that separation, and the perception of it occurs. And that fundamental knot being the anava mullah, the one that says we're not worthy, that we're not enough, that we lack something that there is some teachings there that if you unravel that knot of the other ones, the feeling of being different from, the feeling of being entirely responsible for, those do get handled. Like you are not, you are not the big knot and a lot of little things get handled along the way. This is a premise behind certain meditative practices that it works like a broom within consciousness. at regular time with a mantra in the depths of consciousness, sweeps off a lot of the little debris Mm -hmm. and so you don't have to pick through all the little debris if you have a good cleaning effect of the broom Mm -hmm. and and to some degree i find that true i think also practitioners listening to this know that You go into asana practice, you feel kind of crappy or just lethargic or down on life, blah, 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 blah. You move, you breathe. Maybe there's a playlist. Maybe there isn't. Maybe you like it or not. Shavasana, you feel better. There is like a broom approach of, okay, I swept away some of the debris that was cluttering my consciousness. That happens. And then I think that happens at different levels over time where we immerse ourselves repeatedly in a process of listening to, let's say through asana, listening to the sensations, feeling for the sensations of my body as opposed to its appearances, I get more and more time in the sensory experience of my embodiment as opposed to its image and its appearance. I can start to have a recalibration of reference points. So I think that happens. And still, I know that it's not, I don't have as much faith or blind belief or naive hope that embedded in this side, this society with all of these cultural imperatives around what it means to be in a body and the importance of beauty and how it looks and all of the everything is automatically going to fix itself because I do this thing called yoga. And I think 20 years ago, I thought by now I'd be much more fixed than I am. (laughs) (laughs) It's a reoccurring.
1: (laughs) Theme
0: of the <laughs> but i <laughs> but i have a whole lot less shame than i did
1: mm-hmm. well
0: talk about shame as a tool of separation right mm-hmm. because shame as a tool of separation for me keeps me really separate from the real feelings i'm having beyond the shame yeah i fear fear that i'm unlovable that i don't belong and those feel a lot more vulnerable than just that icky feeling of being covered in shame. And then shame will also tell me that I'm the only one having this experience. Mm -hmm. I'm alone over here, you know, feeling like, well, I know the size of my thighs doesn't actually really matter and that people are really living under supreme oppressive regimes and I'm worrying about my jeans and that that is how they fit and how I look and how people feel about how I look and that whole insanity that is part of that kind of thinking. And I have a whole shame that I'm the only one that suffers that, mm-hmm. so I keep that alone out of shame, you know. And then, so it's functioning as a at a really serious human emotional level as an agent of separation for sure. Mm-hmm. And I do believe it from a philosophical viewpoint that sense of the broom of God that cleans away, <laughs> you know, yes it's not that it's not a matter of belief how that's working. And the, and the evidence of that work is not what I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. I thought I would just never have the thought rather than the thought would sit inside me inside a different structure. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I thought it would be swept away, like really swept away, never to be thought again. Mm -hmm. Rather than, Oh, sometimes to be thought of it again, sometimes to get swept up by, and many times to be able to use it as a source of connection to myself and to others and a, and a source of inquiry even.
1: Yeah.
0: And I don't think I would, um, I, t- I don't talk like the sleeping world and the not sleeping world. Anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, amendments to uh, chapter two.
0: Yeah, there's a lot in there. And also, I would say that I really loved being inside a community and still prefer communities where there is an acknowledgement that whatever is, you know, some dominant paradigm of success, let's say, whatever that success is, because it has many different layers and levels when those things are being questioned, where values exist and are shared or pursued or practiced beyond conventional limited notions of what counts as good enough. Mm -hmm. That for me to grow up and grow into my adulthood inside communities that were questioning those ideals has been really necessary, and now, I, and not just necessary for me to grow at this point, but it's what I prefer. So mm-hmm. I feel like, in a lot of ways, I can hold my own with a reasonable sense of equanimity in a lot of different communities. But, well, but I prefer the company of people who aren't limited to the surface of life. Mm-hmm. And I think that I might language now instead of sleeping and awake. I think the metaphor that works better for me now is surface and deep. And so while I was benefiting and really did feel like I do feel like I benefited from a lot of my time around Lee and around the community and around those standards, it had its own standards of what was good and what was bad. That's the paradox there. Mm -hmm. Um, That language, I can look back and hear it and kind of remember how we would use it inside that community. And it did function as... And us against them. Mm. And of a way of indoctrinating people into being part of this community as opposed to being part of the human family.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. And there's another dynamic tension, probably we can get to it again with the section when we get to community, because i I actually think somehow they're both necessary. Those places of deep belonging where oh these are my people. But I'm much more interested in how those experience might bolster, inform, change me such that it seemed less binary. Mm. And more the human family rather than just the in crowd. Yeah. <laughs> of my chosen family. <laughs> There's something in there that gets my haggles up a little bit about remembering what that was like and how we how it was used inside that community and some of the shadow of what that set up, as well as the beauty of what that set up.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really hearing like from start to finish in this conversation from you, the the widening of perspective. It's not this or that. Yeah. Yeah. We're all just swimming in the ocean together.
0: Amen. Trying to keep your head above the crashing waves of modern times. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate your um,
1: your shares, your reflections, your vulnerability. It's really um, such an honor to get to be in this conversation with you to read your words and ask you to, um, you know, reflect through your perspective. So thank you. Um,
0: and thank you for those out there listening, tuning in. Okay, we'll be back at it. Hopefully before three months from now. <laughs>